0: So I got confirmation while we were uh, on with uh, Aaron here. After the interview, we were discussing if our mutual friend of the program, Brian Fallon, used to skank. Uh, (laughs) I have gotten a response, says, I'm sure I did it shows between 92 and 97. I was pretty into the ska bands and the punk bands. All right. Well, what's that anew? I thought we just went through this whole interview. So you didn't go ooh anymore, Brad? What? <coughs> Did you not listen to a thing that Aaron Aaron said? <laughs> Jesus, you know, you knew you were being quiet. I thought you'd listen to the guy. I was listening, my friend. You hate third wave ska, uh,
1: man? Uh, hate is a strong word. I like the um, positivity and the. Mm-hmm. Uh, it looks like a lot of fun if you have no desire to be or look cool.
0: <laughs> oh, ouch.
1: From a guy. From a guy I, listen, all, like you're
0: asking for trouble right now. You know how easy it is to find you in ridiculous clothing on the internet?
1: It's pretty easy. You're out there, pal. You're right. You're out there. You're, you're right. Out, I am a like target. That. I'll go
0: find it on the Facebook. Oh, wait.
1: No Facebook.
0: That was funny yesterday, huh? Everybody freaked out.
1: Yeah. I was like, I was really, I had this moment of like, oh my God, how awesome would it be if they were just gone and there was no way they could get it back. Like it was completely like all the tech, everything was just wiped out. Like, I mean, I know that I'm an old fart and that there's a lot of people that would be really bummed, but like, holy shit. Like, it would be. So such you a, wanted it.
0: You were into it. You thought it'd be like, a little positive hiccup of, for society,
1: right. like
0: like a little Y two K, like reset. Yeah, there. it would be. Come you on, thought it could have been good. <laughs> Listen, I don't have Facebook, so I, I mean, I was making the joke that yesterday was the day that uh, nobody heard "Happy Birthday," yeah. and <laughs> and that is true because literally every year. I'm like, well, you know, pretty much nobody hit me up on my birthday. That's cool. And then, like, my wife will post something on, like, her Facebook. And all of a sudden, you know, friend-adjacent people, happy birthday, man. I'm like, fuck you. You're so obvious. You know, you didn't write this down. I didn't get no card. You know, these are the the Facebook friends. But my, I, I mean, I honestly went straight to, like, I could give a shit. You could delete any of these social medias, Facebook, like, from my life, and the same as you, I think I'd just be generally relieved that I don't have to do it anymore. Right, but I couldn't help but think there was a uh, some larger agent at work yesterday. I know, you know? that's that's what I kept I, thinking. I'm like, like everyone's joking around on Twitter right now because this is the one social media platform still working today. But I'm the, these tweets could look a lot less funny in about twelve hours if we find. Something fucking nefarious is at work, and well, it probably did,
1: was, right? Did it, I don't know. Has it come out? What the, I mean? Did they make? Yeah, a they statement? came out
0: with some statement. They said they blamed it on something. I, you know, some technical thing like I don't even understand. You know? Uh, yeah,
1: that ha- it happened once before, and the same thing. They were like, uh, we were working on our servers, and we fucked it up.
0: Yeah, yeah. That that was again what they said. It but I feel like that's what they thing. would say
1: if you know, if if like some anarchists like took down their fucking network.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like I mean there's a good chance Facebook just paid uh like a 100 million dollar ransom to yeah. some like crazy fucked up cyber criminal organization yeah. Yeah. who's so close to like toppling the whole thing down yeah. but only like 45 people in the world actually know that still, yeah. you know. Yeah. Am I going too far or is I seem I think it's quite
1: you? likely and and I'm <laughs> Not only that, but if it really did happen, yeah, they would not say a fucking word about it. They would not want anybody to know that that's what happened.
0: I mean, it's getting to the point. It's like the same reason the, you know, the government didn't tell us that we had aliens (laughs) We we can't handle the truth. You know, (laughs) I don't don't think these people can handle the truth. Uh, Uh, Speaking of the truth, (laughs) I appreciated Aaron Carnes coming on to the show here. That is a good book in defense of Ska. It's incredibly well-researched. I mean, the thing that stood out to me about the book right off is just, I mean, loads and loads of not only history and information about Ska, but, you know, firsthand accounts and great stories from a lot of the, you know, original people from each of these waves of Ska, which... Aaron semi rejects, but I made him talk about a bunch of times because, like it or not, there are waves in Ska.
1: Yeah. And, but it's presented really well. That's what got me is that, you know, I think I may have mentioned one or two episodes back that I'm reading this like fucking classic rock uh, book right now that is Mm -hmm. not well written. You know, I was at first, (laughs) I was kind of interested in the content and I, I think I very, very seldom don't finish a book. It's like, it's a real pet peeve with me. I think in my entire life, there's like been two books that I didn't finish. Oh, wow. And this, I may, I may You're end different. up not finishing this book just because it's just, it's just dragging and it's not that well. But, but I started Aaron's book yesterday and like start, gobbled it up. I didn't finish yeah. it, but like, right. you know, and I'm not, I'm, 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 Uh, I like Scott, I like second gen Scott, (laughs) second wave Scott Um, and first, but, you know, it's not, you know, I don't have a huge interest in it, but the book is really interesting and it it really sucks you in because he does give you those cool little stories like that really make it like, you know, really interesting and fun. Yeah. Really fun. Yeah.
0: They're like the personal anecdotal stories of the people actually involved. Yeah. 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 Brad, you gotta take it easy with yourself with the books, you know. Like, just, just don't, don't finish the book if you don't know, like. Who gives a shit? Who's judging I it, you? I don't. You know?
1: it's, I don't. I feel like it's like I don't know. I, I, it's always been a thing with me to like finish a book.
0: Life's too short, man. It if something right. sucks,
1: just, just let it go. You know, <laughs> just let her go.
0: Let her go out there. You know, what's funny. We talked about Fishbone a lot in this interview, and Fishbone was actually a really important band to me uh you know they were one of the early early alternative bands that i heard and kind of got me leaning in that way and i had a bunch of their records in the 90s always been a fan but you know if i think back to it my uh uh first dealings with ska was watching the movie back to the beach you remember that one?
1: No. What is that? Which movie is that? It was,
0: it was the, uh, the the Disney people. Um, what was their name? Frankie Avalon. Oh, you and talked Fun- about this movie. And that yeah, Funicello. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did this ridiculous movie. I mean, you should watch it because it's so <laughs> over the top. It's silly. But, you know, just in the middle of this movie on the beach is Fishbone, right. And they perform a song called Jamaican Ska. I think that was the first time I heard. Ska or Fishbone was was the film Back to the Beach. The Big Kahuna from Down Under. It's a fucking ridiculous movie. Please watch <laughs> it if you can. Well, non-sequitur. That has nothing to do with Aaron. Why don't we uh why don't we play the train and, and listen to his interview?
1: Choo, choo.
0: How's it going, Aaron? It's going great. Yeah. Sorry to come in hot with uh, baby germs.
2: <laughs> oh, I'm I'm here for it.
0: Where are you coming <laughs> live from? Are you, I know you're in Cali. Are you in a Santa?
2: One of the Santas? I am not in a Santa. I am in a Sacro, as oh, in Sacramento. Yeah. Okay. State capital.
0: Wow. A Sacro. Right, so you're a native, uh, what does it say in the book? Santa Clara? Is that your no, native no, area? Um,
2: I actually grew up in a town called Gilroy. Okay. I don't know if you you've probably passed through Gilroy on tour because it is um it's an entry point to the Bay Area. It's if you're on the yeah. if you're on the five and you take the one fifty two to get to the Bay Area, you're going to go right through Gilroy. Then it's San Jose is about thirty minutes north. You know
0: how I think I know Gilroy is because I used to be a uh, avid reader of Heart Attack Magazine. Okay. And, uh, wait, no, not heart attack. Um, the fuck I'm I? ah, oh, that's a bad way to start the interview. <laughs> <laughs> what was like the great, um, DIY zine that came out of that area? Uh, it was also a late, like Ebolition used to put it out. Um, um, mm. Yeah, never mind. This is this is gonna go nowhere. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was heart attack. It was heart attack. Oh my god, I thought I was crazy. So yeah, heart attack was a zine that came out of that area from like uh, abolition records and stuff. And there was a lot of stories from from that scene, and I, I could almost swear that uh, through the years of being a teenager, I heard the word or the uh, the area Gilroy mentioned in there.
2: Yeah, there's not too much happening in Gilroy, but it is famous, uh, quote unquote, famous for being the garlic capital of the world. Oh, go Whoa. on. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's just, just <laughs> whatever. Their g- garlic has well, grown no, there. And no, they no, no, that's not a
0: whatever. <laughs> I mean, we're talking garlic. I put this in everything. Like, yeah,
1: so,
0: me like so garlic. Gar- so, so the people of Gilroy are garlic people.
2: Well, I, historically it's it's that's like its main product. It still exists and when you enter Gilroy you probably smell the garlic cuz it's wow. more but it's um there's a big festival every July called the Garlic Festival that's been going on for a long time and it it is a huge draw. It just thousands and thousands of people come and the food's really good. Don't get me well, wrong, but
0: Yeah, all right. So you got to give me some insight now. This is kind of I've traveled all over this silly country mm-hmm. and you know like most places have something to their credit like the world's largest tape ball or you know yeah, or corn. Yeah. Me, ma- this is this is garlic you know this is a this is a very important uh-huh. thing like what uh what happens at the garlic festival are, okay, are there so, are there um games are there contests yeah. garlic contests
2: <laughs> the main things at the garlic festival are um there are kids there are games for kids there's art to be purchased there's mediocre bands playing and there is a lots and lots of food so the 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 food is the part that's really that's really the only reason to go cuz the food is great um, cuz garlic goes in pretty much everything that's savory i mean they yeah. also have garlic ice cream side note which is actually not bad yeah, and uh, but you go like there's there's the um there's food everywhere, but there's like this one row where they have all the best stuff, like the steak sandwiches and mm. all the just <laughs> just the entrees, and it's just med- people in town like that's like their highlight of the year to participate in like preparing this food and stuff. So, uh, so do you have any
0: background in in growing or preparing? Diet? <laughs>
2: I do not, know, But it's funny is when I... um,
0: Like, do you go to school with like, oh, yeah, that's like, that's Chris. Like, his dad grows garlic. Like,
2: <laughs> My dad's a land surveyor and he's like done work on different like uh, garlic, um, you know, like factories situations. And I remember as, as a teenager, I joined him once and we went into this factory and like from a certain distance, you can smell the garlic. It smells great. But when you go inside where it's like, oh, it's too it gets way too strong. Yeah, little pungent. You know, Benny, I've yeah. been
1: to a garlic festival. You have? Yeah. Why? <laughs> I went to a oh, garlic it, festival it, upstate New York. No, so you haven't been to the no, garlic No, not festival. the garlic not festival. The, not I've the. I've been to Not a the premier, premier Gilroy garlic, <laughs> festival. Gilroy garlic <laughs> <laughs> festival. I'm sure that your garlic festival was superior to this inferior garlic festival, <laughs> which I got pretty bored of after a while, I have to admit. There's only so much well, you can, like, you know, get out of garlic. Mm-hmm. In honor of yeah. the
0: Garlic Festival tonight, I mean the Yankees are about to start their uh, one-game playoff against the Red Sox. Game is gonna. I I decided to interview Aaron instead of watching.
2: <laughs> but, oh, thank you so much. <laughs> no one
0: love, but in honor of the Yankees, my favorite thing to eat at a Yankees game are the garlic cheese fries, mm-hmm. which uh, the garlic fries at Yankee Stadium are tremendous, and you just stink of garlic for like two, you know, when you eat a lot of garlic and then you like burp 36 hours later, and there's <laughs> still like garlic in there for some reason. Yeah, It's very powerful. Do the people are, have you ever seen anyone in Gilroy just fuck up like raw garlic, like eat it like an apple?
2: Never seen that. But here's oh. the, the funny thing about growing up in Gilroy, cause I lived there till I was like, till I moved out as a, you know, my um, late teens and stuff. Okay. So, Started having like friends visit from out of town. You know, they'd come like see me and stuff, and they would always be like, Whoa, man, smells like garlic there. And I'd be like, Really, it does? Cause I, I don't notice it. Like, it just, oh, you just get used to it. Just get used to it. But they, that was like something that they'd all notice. They'd be like, Wow, oh. just second we roll into Gilroy, it's just garlic. Right. It's <laughs> like from when, when,
0: like when you're from New Jersey and you drive out to fresh air. You're like, oh, (laughs) man, I didn't realize where I live stank like shit this whole time, you know? (laughs) Um, Did you know, I I read something fairly recently about how garlic was banned from like the recommended table of foods by whatever, uh, you know, the FDA or something was at the time uh, because of like uh, being racist towards Italians. (laughs) like like yeah like i believe i think it was like early it must have been early 20th century like um and yeah i guess it was like considered you know like too swarthy and too spicy and and ethnic at the time and they like removed Mm -hmm. it from the from the table of foods for uh for racist purposes so when i was um and the italians were were racist against for once you know
2: sure yeah (laughs) When I was um, in '95, when I I roadied for the band Skank and Pickle, that's 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 I I talk about that a little bit in the book. Yes. Um, At one point, everybody, pretty much everybody, got sick on that tour. Uh, For some reason, I didn't get sick, but Lars Nylander, uh, the valve trombonist that band, Mm -hmm. he's like, he's like, told everybody's like. You gotta just eat raw garlic if you want to get better. Mm-hmm. And so everybody on that tour was just like you said; they were just eating garlic, and it was just yeah. Their pores were eminent. but I didn't see them getting better. They were yeah. just <laughs> eating garlic.
0: <laughs> <laughs> They're just being. T- and someone in the back is like, Mister Burns, like, <laughs> like this, <laughs> this doesn't actually work. <laughs> So so uh, when you're a kid in Gilroy, I mean, wh- when did you start um, really actively getting into the the scene and also, you know, writing about the scene? Or how much of a scene was there even to, to be a part of and write about?
2: Well, there wasn't anything in Gilroy, really. I mean, there was a few bands um, and they would put on like, you know, house shows and stuff. There was a band... There was a band called Dutch Courage, um, who were like kind of a funk band. And my friend played bass in that band, kind of a Mm -hmm. funk rap band. And then, um, they, when they broke up, they started this band called Salmon, who actually kind of like, they actually scored a major label and everything, but they just didn't, it didn't, they didn't get beyond the Bay Area, um, but so you know, growing up in, in, in Gilroy in high school, yeah, I just saw a few like house shows and stuff, and then San Jose was like the next big city. San Jose and Santa Cruz, but in different directions. Those oh, were about okay. thirty, forty minutes away, and those were the that was the first major destination. And I was just itching to go to shows, but my mom, who was very religious, kept you know putting the just kept saying no, no. And then finally, like when I was 16, I convinced her to let me, my friend, and my friend's older brother go to see Living Color and uh, King's X. Oh, cool. Because, yeah, which was a great show. Yeah. And just because the older brother was going, and she's like, okay. But he was All like, right. wait, you had a chaperone. More, yeah, way more irresponsible than me and my friend, though. So. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and then after Bad that, move, yeah. mom. Yeah. But I was like, before I even got to go to shows, I was really fascinated that of this idea that there was this like underbelly of music and art that existed that was completely separate from the radio.
0: How did you have that like, uh, how did you have that window to it without without being exposed to the shows and stuff yet?
2: Just a couple like, you know, just a couple weird kids who were stoners and like had all the tapes, you know, Mm -hmm. so they would have the punk rock and they'd have, you know, and at the time there was uh, the funk the funk metal funk rap was really big in the Bay Area, oh, but right. but that involved stuff like you know Primus came out of that scene. Um, mm. Mr. Bungle did, right. um, but then there was other bands like Fungo Mungo and Limbo Maniacs and Psycho So I loved all that stuff. I was just collecting tapes. Some of those bands like Fungo Mungo at the time didn't have a album, and somebody taped me this like um, performance they did like live on the radio, and I listened to that like. So many times, and then when they it's find- funny
0: you say Mr. Bungle because our our mutual friend now Jeff Rosenstock mm-hmm. informed me that one of the first ska songs he ever heard was Mr. Bungle, and I wrote sure. I wrote to him being like, wait, like Mr. Bungle, like Mike Patton, Mr. Bungle, like yeah, you know, and he sent me a link to a song, and I'm like, oh yeah, sure enough, that's a ska song. So I mean, the, the fact that they popped out of that that scene, it, it makes sense.
2: I, re- I read an interview with um, the guitarist Trey. Um, this was a recent interview, and he said that they were like death metal, you know, metalheads. They were up in like north the North Bay, I think. Right. And um, they sa- he said that uh, one day Fishbone rolled through town and completely blew all of their minds. And they were just like, uh. wow, this is amazing. And they started getting into like two-tone ska and all that stuff. So that was a huge... That was a huge uh, foundation of like their early years you yeah. know leading into that first album, which you can hear it because they just hop up from every style, but ska's definitely one of them that's wild yeah
0: so so you were talking about your window into it through all those bands like uh so how did you actually like make the jump and start going you You went to that one show and then it was just off you went, like obsessive. <sighs> yeah.
2: I I was really into that show, but I was really interested in the clubs, you know. And Uh, as soon as I started going to clubs, you know, and somebody told me that there's this band called Skank and Pickle I needed to check out, and um, that was up in Santa Clara at this club called One Step Beyond. Santa Clara is like um, sort of an extension of San Jose, and um, I had no context for what it was that they were doing. I just some just you know a friend of you know the friend that's like knew I like the weird underground music was like, check right. this out. So sure. I was like, whoa. You know, I kind of, from that concert, being so blown away by the band, uh, their music, the stage show, they were extremely, like, theatrical at that point. Yeah, what was this the was like,
0: Skank and Pickle show in 92? Like, what was the energy?
2: Uh, it was just pure insanity. Like, um, <laughs> uh, so so this is our first bass player was Mike Mattingly, and he's bald, completely, like, shiny, bald head, right? Uh-huh. So he comes out, he's wearing a wig that looks totally real and he's got this totally, this crazy outfit where it's like the, the ugly, ugly Hawaiian shirt, um, ugly seventies pants that don't match. Yeah. And he's got like kind of a fake butt thing going on. So, <laughs> okay. and he, so he's doing this and for a couple songs, he's just in that outfit huh. and then he's, and he's got a bit that he does that. For everybody who's already seen them they they start laughing as soon as he starts, but for those of us who hadn't seen it before we're just kind of like perplexed, and he starts talking about um you know how he's the hair club for men and how you know how he's not just a it's not just a, he's not just a president but he's also a client, and then he like <laughs> whips off the wig and he's just like, "Whoa, yeah,
0: and, and you, were, you were you and- were attracted to like i mean you were just that kind of kid you were like this
1: yeah. shit's
2: funny I'm into this." It was funny, but it was also like just crazy. It was just right. like chaotic, right? The, the the stage presence was like, everyone was like their own unique performer that was mm-hmm. putting on their own unique show that was sort of like almost uh, unrelated to what the other members of the band were doing. Like they were just going wild. And um, the music was all over the place. Like it would be really fast to be like slow reggae songs. Right. Uh, but it was serious, too. They would talk about anti-racist stuff, you know. And what was the, like, in 92 there,
0: what was the crowd like for a show like that?
2: What I remember is it just being, like, everybody. Like, it was just, like, you know, like, you'd see, like, just the, those kind of slightly older, scary metalhead dudes with long hair. Mm-hmm. You'd see, like, you know, you'd see dudes in suits. You'd see just everything. Just you'd just tie-dye shirts. Just It didn't really feel like there was any particular person. And the thing that also stuck out to me too was like, because I was really into Primus and I was really into a lot of those bands. Mm -hmm. And even as much as I loved Primus, like seeing them live at that club level was like kind of scary. Like they had a kind of scary audience. And because Primus at that time too, they had this whole, the whole bit about we're Primus and we suck. And the crowd like played along with it, quote oh. unquote, by like throwing shit at them. I vaguely remember like, that. Yeah, 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 they
0: would like. Yeah, they would egg them on, and yeah, I said, and be like, remember. "Fuck
2: you, Les! You fucking That's suck!" Right. Like that yeah. was part of their bit, it and it was a little terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Huh. But but Skank and pickle, like even though the crowd was like, it was kind of a wild energy and wild crowd. Like I didn't feel intimidated being like a kind of a you know dorky teenager, right? And, uh, like I felt very, very, I felt, it felt very inclusive Yeah, and like, yeah. So I, I, I like that about it too, you know, I heard I that, that it wasn't. Yeah. I heard
0: that brought up a bunch in the book, kind of the, the idea that like a lot of the different scenes kicking around were sort of, you know, violent or, you know, macho or, you know, a mm-hmm. lot of the things that we didn't like and Sky always seemed like a, like a safe place for people in a lot of ways. Like, why do you think that is?
2: Um, I think that some of it, I think is just the, the nature of the music that it's, um, it has an, an innately joyful sound to it. Mm. And that um, it has like, its roots are also in, in, in politics and, and inclusion and anti-racism. Right. Sure. So even though, even if the bands aren't being overt about it, they're kind of in tune to that, those roots and stuff. Right. So I I think that that's part of it.
0: So, like, even if you were a, you know, a ska band who is starting now, in order to tip your hat correctly to the earlier generations of ska, you would still have to be sort of cognizant of that stuff, right?
2: Yeah, and I think you 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 pretty much learn about it eventually, you know, because it's not it's not too hard to go backward a little bit and be like, okay, so what was what was happening with two tone? Oh, okay. And then, oh, this music comes from Jamaica. I I think that's there's something too about a music having a long legacy Mm. too that's a little different than most alternative forms of music that um, exist in the underground, like whether it's punk rock or metal. Like these don't, these don't have these like, I mean, they've been around a long time, but they don't have these same kind of roots as um, SCADAs. So I think that kind of changes the tone and timbre of a little bit.
0: It's interesting you brought up, you know, I I really liked Fishbone when I was younger,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but I had nothing to do with the ska scene. I, I really didn't even know about it yet. And my connection to Fishbone was via, like, Living Color and 24-7 Spies. I was into, like, hard rock, you know, and I liked the, yeah. you know, the heavy guitars and the stuff like that. So I didn't even know they were ska, but then, you know, throughout the course of your book, I mean there's a number of artists and bands who sort of note Fishbone as as the band that they saw that kind of just took it to like another level at that time. What 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 did Fishbone really do for the the scene? And did they kind of were they the people who kickstarted I know you're not into the waves but we're going to have to talk about it I'm You sorry. can call
2: it whatever you want Um
0: like but <laughs> it seems like they were some some one of the big uh jumps from like the second to the third wave Right Yeah so
2: Fishbone are an, an interesting case because they're not a ska band but they played a lot of ska and they influenced American ska Probably more than any other band. I mean, right. maybe op maybe Op Ivy is neck and neck with them, but Sure, sure. So Fishbone, they formed in like um I guess technically they formed in like the late 70s, but they were just, you know, kids playing in uh in their in Norwood's uh house. Right. But they were really started gigging more in the eighties. And um there if you listen to the early Fishbone stuff, it's it's a majority ska. Okay, uh, but it's but it's like faster and a little a little bit more unhinged than what they were doing with two tone because mm. the other American ska bands in the eighties were very much like using two tone as this sort of like model like this is how you play. Who ska. were those you, bands
0: at the time? Like the Toasters, like stuff like that.
2: Toasters were in the, in New York. They right. formed in the early eighties. Uh, there was the Untouchables in L.A. who mm. were. Um, Ska, but also like, kind of like Northern soul. They're very, very into like mod stuff too. Uh, The Uptones were in uh, the Bay Area. Um, They're an interesting band too, because they weren't as famous, but they were, um, they were the band that the uh, Operation Ivy guys saw. And they were, so they were a big influence on Operation Ivy. Um, Crazy Eights were up in Portland. Not, not a strictly Ska band, but kind of leaned in the Ska realm. Uh, Bim Scala Bim were the like the Boston ska band right. that predated uh, Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. Mm-hmm. Um and then there's a bunch of other bands too in the early '80s. Kind of you know came and went, but those were like the bigger ones for sure.
0: Yeah, that. up. Uh, oh, there was up.
2: also um, Heavy Manners in Chicago. Um, Detro- uh, Detroit had a band that started a little later, like mid '80s, called um, Gangster Fun, who were um, they were huge, hugely influential on in the development of Midwest ska. Oh, okay. But so Fishbone kind of is unique to all these bands because they brought this level of um, chaos to their music and they also brought this level of like, you know, you can play anything you want with this music. Mm, I mean, yeah, I don't think that they were thinking of it that way. Like we're a ska band that plays other styles of music. It's just that they played a lot of ska and they did a lot of other stuff. But the thing is that Fishbone are like good at any style that they set their minds to. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> They could play like slow funk, and then they could play crazy, like the fastest ska you've ever heard. And it's like right. they do it good. <laughs> they could play metal, uh, yeah. But in the '80s, it was like primarily ska oriented, I'd say. And so that that really set the stage for a lot of the '90s ska bands. You know, the right. Fishbone were a huge influence, and it them and Operation Ivy it really set the stage for what ska would sound like, or the the, the main ingredients for ska in the '90s.
0: So I hadn't realized, I mean, you know, it's such a vast scene that obviously, you know, people just go like, oh, like 90s ska, you know, and that can vary so wildly between so much different stuff. But as you said, even, uh, you know, there was a part in the book, you know, Op Ivy being one of the biggest, you know, influencers of American ska there were. And Jesse Michaels said in your book that, you know, they only played punk shows and, Mm -hmm. Ska kids rejected them plainly because they didn't have the horns and they didn't have suits.
2: Yeah. Um, Yeah.
0: Like what was, uh, what was that division, you know, like then? Um, And, you know, were the, were the purists, you know, uh, okay with this ska punk thing? And, and does that rift kind of still exist?
2: So I think what happened with Op Ivy is that, they created their they created their own fan base and their their fan base was punks and after they broke up is when Operation Ivy really developed right. a big audience. Yeah. Because they broke up right, right after or right before the release of Energy. Uh they'd only toured the US once. Um they were kind of a, just a Gilman band in a way, and they were just starting to just starting to get out of that, and then they broke up. So I don't know that it was like uh, a hard, like Ska kids hated them. It was more like it wasn't even in the, mm. for them, it wasn't, they weren't even in the sight of Ska kids right, for the right. most part. And they didn't really play with the Ska bands because the Ska bands were more like eight piece bands with horns and suits. Right. And they were a yeah. four piece punk band who also played punk Ska riffs. And also like that band, what's interesting is that Jesse isn't particularly a Ska person himself. Um, Tim and Matt, I'd say, are the ska people, and they really drove that ska element of that band. I think that Jesse and the drummer Dave went along with them because it sounded great, and they were really passionate about ska as well as punk. And that's why you see... That's really why there's so much ska in that band is because of them. But probably particularly Tim, who was a huge ska fan. He loves ska a lot.
0: I mean when you were doing research did you hear uh you know various stories about kind of the separation in in style and aesthetic it, it seem it's kind of fascinating yeah. to me cuz i mean, we we're, we uh interviewed Joe Gittleman fairly recently you know and he had said you know from the beginning of the Boston's like the suits you know the suits were a thing like we had to have the suits you know, and and I felt like it was really like paying an homage to like the things of the past and stuff like that by wearing the suit. So was it sort of kind of a, a separation or a branch off for some of yeah, these so, bands to aesthetically
2: not take that on? Yeah. So I think what happened is um, Operation Ivy was like a band that punks like. And then after they broke up in the early 90s, I think it started to spread to all kinds of other kids. And so you start to see bands forming in the late 80s early 90s that are you know influenced by Operation Ivy and Fishbone and that are just wanting to play all kinds of music with ska and they're not concerned with fashion at all mm-hmm. and in fact some of them are kind of like this is dumb like we yeah. should just dress however we want.
0: Almost like an and, anti fashion, right?
2: Yeah, so that the rift there was a rift that happened in the in the 90s, early 90s. That's when you really start to see it because what's happening is those those bands are really starting to develop into a scene. And the um traditional Was it kind of the
0: American co-option of it too that, that started sure, that yeah. was it like the wear takenness and the the suit thing is English?
2: I don't know that it's English. It's more like you know we're we're um evolving it into what our influences and i think right. the the suit wearing bands were very much like yeah this is a music with history and we know the history backwards and forwards and we're not going to mess this music up and we don't like other people messing this music up so that was sort of the two narratives going on and that they kind of came they were clashing a lot in the in the early early nineties, hmm. to where you start getting these like skinheads and like rude boys that would go to these ska punk shows and they would just stare, just stare at bands, <laughs> right. give them a dirty look, like,
0: <laughs> right, right.
2: How dare you? How dare yeah. you ruin my music? So like,
0: traditionalists, yeah, yeah. But
2: what happened was is that like those bands just kind of stopped playing together for for a while. To it, this was almost like there's this scene and there's this scene, you know. Mm. And mm-hmm. I think that some of the tension died down by the mid nineties um these days, I don't see much tension. I think people it's like you know ska you know people a lot a lot of people are like me, they just call it all ska, and then we can discuss the subgenres after but <laughs> right it's sure ska and and so, yeah, you might see some infighting uh in like online, but I think that's more an internet thing than a, an actual subculture. Division, right, right, right. because people just like to fight online now about anything. Oh, they love it. But if you go to like shows, I don't think you're going to see this division in real life.
0: (laughs) How do you? I mean, you must have like you know. I mean, it's literally the the nature of your book is is defending ska, which yeah, you know, which leads me to infer. That you have had to defend yourself a number of times. <laughs> like, I mean, <laughs> like, has that you know is is that gotten worse? You, like, you're an actual ska person who's my age, so so your love for ska predates the internet. H- has it gotten e- even harder to have this this free form of ideas and the one of the most like widely you know as we talk in the book misridiculed types of music, but. Is it is it brutal in the internet age being a ska fan? <laughs> or does so, it connect you better or now you're more unified?
2: So um things have changed recently but I would say like um which I'll, I'll I'll touch on but I'd say like this sort of like hatred and just mocking of ska was wasn't something so much common when ska was popular. Mm. It's really something that's developed over the years since ska was popular like in the 2000s even though ska still exists, you know, as a vibrant underground scene, it's it leaves the mainstream, and, and people are very embarrassed by it. And there's you know, there's certain people that pretend like they never were part of it. There's bands yeah, that are like right. trying to tweak their sound or like say that there's something different, like uh, we're we're rock with horns, or you know, they're just trying to like weasel their way out of being associated right. with ska. And that's and even a part even,
0: in your book, right? Like, sure, yeah, the, and, those and, those people who are ska shamed. Like publicly, sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: Like uh, the Killers drummer and the uh, the Bravery had members that were in ska bands that were just outed so in a magazine. It's so bizarre. It really is. <laughs> it is. It's crazy.
1: Yeah. I as, so what I as the oldest guy in the room who uh, has worn out a few specials cassettes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh I think that you only have to defend ska because of the quote-unquote third wave that like I don't recall like you know that the specials and those two-tone bands back in the day uh, were looked on as you know silly or anything. I think that you know yeah. you had these like n- late 90s bands who were goofy I mean it was fun as hell but you know they were really goofy they they took it you know the presentation was pretty goofy
2: and I, know, I I I agree to a point like I think you're right like two tone doesn't require defending and especially not in England it's it's revered there um here it's just less known but I my argument is that ska becoming mainstream sort of decontextualized de- it mm-hmm. in a way and Yes, there, there are silly bands, there's dorky bands, but there was a lot of bands.
1: Right. You know, yeah. There was
2: a lot of American bands in the 90s um, that were doing ska in all kinds of different ways. I mean, the music I was interested in was generally not the mainstream stuff. I mean, I don't have a problem with it and I like some of it, but I was very interested in what was happening on the underground level, ev even during even while some of these bands were being elevated. So from my perspective, I saw lots of great bands in the nineties in the US that were just not were just totally dismissed because of people's perception of ska was limited to what was presented to them on MTV in the nineties. Mm. And that's I think the primary reason I've taken this approach to the book, which is somewhat to be a little bit tongue-in-cheek and somewhat to, a little bit to like push back on popular narratives to kind of like, you know, catch people's attention a little bit Yeah, sure. because people are so used to making fun of ska (laughs) is to say like, okay, well this is the, you're looking at the tip of the iceberg. Let's talk about the entire, uh, what's underneath the water. Well, I mean, it's
0: true. It's like to a mainstream person, uh, you know, offspring was what they knew of as punk. Right. In (laughs) that time, you know, so, so I can understand that argument and actually, now that you mention it, do you think that that boost in um, in ska punk in the 90s and stuff, was that actually tied to the Green Day kind of offspring mainstream explosion? Like, like ska and punk were so tied together that the ska scene sort of boomed at the same time, particularly so ska- since those bands are kind of from the same place, right?
2: So what happened was is that ska had had a pretty healthy underground scene for like 15 years, um, before it became a mainstream genre, there was just assortment of vans in the early eighties, mid eighties, late eighties, early nineties. And they built, it was a very much an organic growth and it was very, it was surprisingly big, I would say, and off the radar. Was it regional Um,
1: at all or or was it kind of, it was both,
2: it was both regional. And by the early nineties, the touring networks had, really developed in a pretty cohesive way. So a lot of these bands were living on the road and they were scraping out a living as a, as an underground club band in the nineties. Right. So, and there was record labels, there was zines, there was all kinds of stuff happening. It was pretty, it was, it was a very healthy scene. Um, but you are correct in the sense of like, so for years there was always this like sense of like, is ska going to, you know, is there going to be a band that's going to break? Is there going to be because Scott's very poppy? It right. seems like a natural thing. There is going to be a pop hit,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and you know, there wasn't. There wasn't, right. and then Green Day, you know, Offspring, those bands become pop stars, and I think that that was definitely helped the uh, a, the labels who did not understand Scott at all didn't really quite know where to put it. They were able to look at the bands that were more in the realm of being influenced by pop punk and say, yeah, okay, we can market this music to a similar audience that were marketing pop punk. And that's why this kind of bands that got mainstream did. Right. And that's why it happened at the moment it did. But that didn't reflect the totality of the American ska scene in the 90s. Right. Hey, I br- mean, band, bands I love, like, I mean, MU 330 is a great band um, that were, they were not traditional at all, but they played they had all kinds of interesting influences like a lot of indie rock stuff like Weezer and, and other elements mixed with ska in a very creative way. Yeah. I really um,
0: appreciate that you had the opportunity to do something for NPR yeah, yeah. and the, uh, and the, the band you chose to highlight was MU Three Thirty. I was like, good for That's, you. Yeah. Like, good for you. The Scott, the Scott book guy should do a deep cut, you know? <laughs> yeah. That was good. Um, Well, you you talked about like Brad asked about the regional thing, you know, uh, was there, you know, for punk and hardcore and the scenes I was a little, you know, more closely tuned to, there was um, uh, such regional differences in sound, you know, through the 80s and 90s, like which ska scenes, you know, throughout America were known for what types of things like were there very specific sounds coming out of specific cities?
2: I would say to to some degree, yes. But then also, you know, people would also do their own thing. I mean, I think there was definitely an Orange County scene, which is the scene that, you know, gave us real big fish and save Ferris technically, no doubt, but no doubt we're kind of an earlier generation and, and already moved away from Ska by the time they had been launched into the mainstream. Ska
0: adjacent. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um that, you know, that, that's sort of like pop punky sort of, you know, lighthearted thing. I mean, that was pretty, that was pretty more indicative of Orange County, right. which makes sense if you've been to Orange County. Sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we up here in Northern in Bay area, even though it was diverse, I think we were just very influenced by the legacy of Gilman and right. Um, right. Skank and Pickle were, were from this area. They started in the late eighties and and they were highly influential. I mean, even though they were like, almost like vaudevillian level theatrical in the the early version of the band. Yeah. They were also like really diverse musically. Mm-hmm. It was like anything goes with them. And once their first bass player was kicked out of the band, they really pulled back on the goofiness. It was like much more of like a, and they pulled back on some of the other styles. It was much more of a, of a punk ska thing and um, diverse, interesting, More political. I mean, the political elements were always there, but they, they leaned a bit more into it. Um, so I think the Gilman was definitely, um, permeated that scene. Um, New York, I feel like you can kind of see this sort of deeper love and connection to two-tone ska and some bands definitely brought in a jazz element. Oh, yeah. Like
0: Mephiscophiles um, or something.
2: Mephiscophiles were very jazzy, even yeah. though people like to talk about how they were satanic. It's really more like, I mean, it's really more like those guys were like some crazy, they had some crazy jazz students on horns because yeah. their horn lines are pretty weird.
0: And their shows were fucked up. They were they
2: were crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I, no, yeah. They, they were, they, they played it up for sure. Because <laughs> I, I was just telling my
0: wife earlier, because, you know, my idea of local Scott at the time, Um, you know, there was all this stuff on TV and then I was going to Newark and seeing bands like inspector seven and, and Mephistopheles and stuff. And, and they were kind of connected with like local, like oi bands and, you know, kind of some actual, like sort of gnarly shit, you know, like it definitely
2: wasn't goofy. It was kind of scary almost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like the Midwest, even though the the Midwest is a big, thing with different spots it had a unique culture in that it was like kind of isolated and you know in the early days uh, there might be like a ska band per city so they like these bands would sort of develop their own thing in isolation mm. in a weird right. way That's and cool. it, it 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 did not really adhere much to the traditions because they just weren't even that in touch with it and so you'd have like me330 or your mustard plug or your um, suicide Machines. These bands, it all sound extremely different from one another, but right. they they were sort of like lumped together in a weird way, and they would tour together because they were like, we're from the Midwest. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, you have Blue Meanies in Chicago. wake we're, people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they stick together. So I think the region's definitely factored in, but the touring became so big by the, you know, especially by the mid-90s. All those, ba- all those bands were touring together, and you would see those bands, but... I mean, looking back to like, you know, talking to people who grew up in the East Coast, like definitely some of the bands that I was like more in tune with or, or seemed bigger to me, like was different to them on the East Coast. like Because like the, some of the East Coast bands only made it out to California like once or twice, mm. whereas like certain bands would come through California, um, you know, once or twice a year. Right. So they seem bigger than like, oh, you know, this New York band, like Memphis Scopheles, I saw like once. Um I don't know how often they toured out to California, but I can remember wanting to see them and only having the opportunity once. So hmm.
0: you uh, you mentioned Gilman Street before, and I, you know it's sort of a a fascinating place to me because it's it's really yeah. one of the last you know old mainstays of that you know time that's that's still going. What was what was that? Paint a picture of the old Gilman Street for me when you used to go. Was it a real a real sanctuary for for kids like you up in that area.
2: <laughs> well, for I didn't get to go when I was too young because I grew up in Gilroy, like we discussed, and that's up in Berkeley, which is like probably an hour and a half away. So that it took a little while. I was a little couldn't, older. couldn't convince
0: uh, yeah, yeah church church mom to get you to Gilman Street too young.
2: Yeah, it was, you know, getting to San Jose and Santa Cruz was the first, that was the first level. And then right. getting to San Francisco and East Bay, that was the next the level. The next step, yeah. But um, I did when I was, you know, in like, like 17, 18, it would, could go up there. And it was, sure. I wouldn't say it was, I never thought of it that way. It was more just like um, dingy, right. <laughs> graffiti everywhere. But was it um, like intimidating or welcoming? I would, It was welcoming, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's still, the thing I love about Gilman is that if you go now, it's still like all the like young punk teenagers own that place. You know yeah, what I mean? It's not best. just a bunch of old punks, like talking about the good old days. I mean, those, those people are there, but they kind of stay to the back and, and the kids just go crazy and the kids are, have Mohawks and, and are just, that's it. They own that space. So I feel like it's, that's the really cool thing about that's Gilman. Cool. Did I, um... I shot, I, uh, my book cover was shot Gilman. Oh, nice. Um, I don't know if I sent you the cover actually. Uh, not, not that,
0: no, I went I, straight into the book. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. I went straight. That's into right. The I forgot book.
2: to send you the cover. Um, so I, last, last, uh, summer while we were in the pandemic, I, um, had this idea for the cover of this book. I wanted it to have, um, I wanted it to have a little bit of a punch to it. I wanted it to send the message that, um, I was going to punch back on the like idea that ska was worthy of me being made fun of. So I wanted it to be kind of eye-catching in that sense. So I had I thought this idea like, oh, you know, like I want like a a graffiti filled wall with ska sucks on it, and I want someone to cross it out and put the book uh, title yeah, on it. Oh yeah, I did see
0: that. Yeah, that was yeah. great. Yeah, that was cool.
2: So we were me and my publisher where they had their art guy do it. He did like a cartoon. It was okay, but it kind of my my friend was like, You gotta do a photo. You gotta just do a photo, mm-hmm. go to Gilman. We have friends that you know. Both him and I have friends that volunteer there, and uh, so I, I asked. I said, "Hey, can I come in and uh, just <laughs> r- you know paint my book cover on your wall <laughs> and take a photo?" They're like, "Yeah, go ahead.
0: Oh, that's that's awesome. fine." Yeah.
2: <laughs> so we did that. We 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 found a wall. We we cleared some of it. We kept like graffiti around the edges. We put Ska sucks" on there, crossed it out, and put and then put the book cover on there. And we took photos of it and uh, um. All day during the pandemic, masks uh, uncomfortable and also very stressful for me. Like whether or not it was actually going to yield <laughs> a oh, good right. visual. Yeah, sure. But yeah, and I, I think it, I think it came out great, and I think it actually has that message that I like wanted it to have—a little bit of a like, "Scott doesn't suck." Just like you, th- you're thinking Scott <laughs> sucks. It doesn't. Like a little yeah. bit of a challenge, almost like I dare you to read this.
0: <laughs> well, I think I mean it seems like if your mission was to you know, at least pop on the light bulb of someone who's about to start talking shit again. <laughs> I think I think you were successful at that. You know, it oh, takes, yeah, it you. takes a very, uh, you know, well-researched and interviewed book to do something like that. So good for you for taking it on. I mean, speaking of which, like, you know, um, h- how long did it actually take to, to put this book together? I mean, there's a massive amount of interviews and, uh, you know, from, from inception to release,
2: like how, how long was that process? It was about a seven year process of writing wow. it. And and then, then there was another year of like, um, you know, I finished it in like the beginning of 2020 and then we kind of worked out some s- stuff and then we d- agreed to release it in May of 2021. And so kind of spent like some from September, 2020 until the release, like promoting it, you know, trying to make sure that people were aware of it. I mean, some of that was, I, I became like mildly obsessed with getting publicity because I had worked so, so long on it. I, yeah, wanted, sure. to be, I, I wanted, wanted to like make sure people knew about it, you know?
0: Yeah. You didn't want eight years. Just, Oh, no one noticed that. Okay.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I started in like 2013, but I, I didn't, yeah. I didn't have the idea of defending it. Uh, back then I was just like, I want to write something about ska. There's not like a lot written about ska, particularly so, Ameri- American ska. Just so did it start ignored. as
0: more of kind of a, a,
2: history, like history reference kind of approach? That's kind of the approach I was taking because I wrote, read a lot of those books and I was just like noticing the lack of history in American ska. Um, I, I Jamaican ska, you will find a good history in, like, several reggae books. We'll devote the first third to that period. Um, my my personal favorite is Bass Culture, which is a, a phenomenal book. Okay. And, um
0: And the his, that's the early history of, of ska that, and reggae?
2: Yeah, that that goes from, like, the ska days to, like, it, it touches on dance hall even a little bit, but it's mostly you know, ska and reggae. Yeah,
0: I do want to um, dig into that because I, I noticed you wrote in the book... Uh, you can find, you know, if you go back and dig into the the local, you know, Kingston Jamaican musicians and really start to try to uncover where this sound came from, you'll apparently get like a dozen different responses, <laughs> right? right? Like there's not sure, yeah. There's not but, I, I kind of love that mythical aspect to it when you can't really like pinpoint, you know, mm-hmm. where the magic started, you know.
2: That that is true, but um, you can. We'll also say that we will attribute it to the Scotolites. They definitely perfected it. They definitely perfected the ska beat, and they played Mm -hmm. on not only their own records, but they played on a lot of the other the singers' records. So okay, wherever the wherever. So so that was like
0: that the early house band. Was was kind yeah, of it was them. Basically, what, yeah. Basically, yeah. What were the um, musicians like? where were the some of the musicians in that group? Um,
2: Tommy McCook, Roland Alfonso, Don Drummond. Um, there was uh, Lloyd Nibb. He was the drummer, so we can okay. say Lloyd Nibb. Scott Drumming is such an, the drumming is such an important part of ska and reggae. It's a very unique style of drumming. Can we have um, a Lloyd
0: Nibb? Uh, appreciation segment here. How much do you know about this guy? I'd love to give him. Uh, a little uh, I, I
2: can't really give you a biography on him, other than okay. to say that you know he's. Loeden, <laughs> not not only did he, you know, was was he responsible for perfecting the ska beat, but um, a funny story is that so the band you're familiar with the band Hepcat, right, from L.A. in the 90s. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, they were probably sure. the best, the best version of American ska, um, rooted in Jamaican style ska even though okay. it, it was it was modern it had modern soul and latin elements as well but they were trying to honor the uh, the traditional sound um they were doing this band and um they got to tour lights, and um the sconolites and Lloyd Nib took the drummer aside he said told him he's like, how he how he was doing the drumming wrong and he right. like gave him a tutorial on how to correctly play ska drumming so <laughs> that That's there's a Lloyd awesome. Nib story for you. <laughs> yeah,
0: I love it. I'm on his Wikipedia now. I'm I'm, I'm going to save this for later. I I got to dig into this guy. Cuz you know, that was even part of what was going to be one of my lines of question. I mean, I know you you really uh you spoke about a lot of bands that I think you you may have highlighted for this exact reason, but you know, we talk a lot on the show about how you know every band who gets or artist who gets uh, a lot of acclaim usually has a groundbreaking predecessor that doesn't get much credit.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: you know, is there any of those types of artists that that pop into your head? Like, you know, someone who you you think is is widely influential that that doesn't get a lot of recognition?
2: Yeah, I mean, Scott's kind of weird because like. People, musicians who maybe dismiss American ska, they're probably in tune with Jamaican ska and respect it, and they probably know about Two-Tone and respect it. That stuff's all phenomenal. But they probably don't know much about or have dismissed the stuff that came after it. And mm-hmm. some of that stuff was what actually got more popular. Right. So, I mean, yeah, we can talk about the... Um, lights. are the absolute most important... Um, Jamaican artist in the formation of the ska sound. Um, but I don't know like how unknown they are in a sense to people who are in, into music and into stuff like that. Um, maybe like, maybe kids that are into like pop, you know, like pop punk ska, maybe aren't super familiar with that and they yeah, should know yeah, yeah. more about it. Two-Tone Ska it was like um, the specials, Madness, Selector, all those bands are phenomenal. They were uh, huge, huge in England. They were my like right. to- They were like top mainstream pop-
0: English bands, right?
2: Yeah. So if you were in England at the time, you either got swept up in in it, or you were at least aware of it because it like it swept the country for a few years. And so it's it has a legacy, um, you know, just like bands that were super famous in the U.S. in the seventies. It has an ongoing legacy that people continue to dwell on and stuff. Um you'll see sure. like you'll see some of the most like unique references to the specials and and some of those bands in in English bands that you wouldn't think like um what's that band called the streets there's some I feel like oh, you can yeah. you can hear some some huh. specials references or um you know sounds uh blur I know blur were big fans of specials and Interesting Uh, Because, you know, they they were just like an awesome, like an awesome band that happened like, you know, the generation before. Right. I didn't really think of it in terms of ska, you know. Huh. Wow. Um, Yeah. In terms of American ska, like, I feel like we cannot, um, we cannot talk enough about Fishbone. Fishbone are a fairly known band, but I also feel like Fishbone should have been like, the biggest band to come out of the nineties. Like they should have right. been like, they should have been like real red hot chili peppers, like that level. Big. Yeah. Right. But, and, they, and unfortunately they weren't, I mean, they had um, the reality of my surroundings. That album came yeah. out in 1990, um, which is a really good album. It's not really a Scott album. It's goes into some pretty unusual territory, both um, in terms of the styles of music. And it's very, it's a, It's an album that's, I don't know if I want to say it's political, but it definitely portrays uh, uh, an image of what it's like to be black in America. Sure. Um, So you think about like 1990 alternative rock audiences listening to this really diverse record uh, talking about racism. I mean, you can kind of see why it did not. It it flopped. Yeah,
0: it's true. I mean, it's just kind of like the like the early like Lollapalooza crowd at that point was Yeah, like, yeah, but that the, was the, the record the where
2: Yeah. That was the record where they were sort of positioned to take off, you know. Right. In, in terms of like the momentum they'd built and sort of like the label had yeah. kind of thought it like okay, this is it. And th- the song that they picked to be their breakout single, um Everyday Sunshine was like um Oh yeah. kind of like a gospel punk song. <laughs> what yes. a what a weird choice. I mean, yes. I love this song, but what a weird choice.
0: Yeah, that's funny. I remember that when that So speaking of doing interviews, uh, this, this question actually came again from mutual friend of the program, Jeff Rosenstock. Ah. And, uh, (laughs) you know, I was like, I was like, what do you got for Aaron? You know, he's (laughs) at first, actually, you'll appreciate this. I texted him. I'm like, yeah, let's get, let's get a little quiz going here. You know, like let's, let's try to stump the expert and Jeff like admittedly was like, dude, I don't think me and you could stump him as far as this goes. Like, <laughs> he just knows more than us. I'm like, all right. I'm like, so, well, you know, one of the things he wanted to know, speaking of interviews was, uh, was there anybody, you know, while doing this that was hesitant to speak about their ska past, their lurid ska past?
2: Um, so I feel like maybe, I didn't get that, but, you know, sometimes people don't respond. So you, you, you oh, don't right. really maybe know. Maybe those yeah. were the ones who were <laughs> hesitant. Yeah, that's true. So, so, th- so I'll, I'll kind of answer, um, I'll kind of have a different, a little bit different response to that in that what I've noticed in the last year is that people are very... Um, they like really want to talk about their ska past now in a way I've never oh, seen it.
0: They're owning it. Like
2: it used to it used oh. to be this thing where it's like you had to pull it out of people or they were right. trying to hide from it, right?
0: Yeah. Right. Now
2: like, you know, with, with everything that's happened with like this the, the new bands coming out and and Jeff's album, Ska Dream. Um Dare I say the letting...
0: fourth wave. <laughs> Is that what's you, happening? You may dare. Is that what's happening? I don't know. <laughs> Is our you know, buddy? You know the key... All right, let's just play it out. There is friend of the program, Jeff Rosenstock, king of the fourth wave. That's what I'm asking.
2: <laughs> you know, you know what Jeff said when he was on my podcast. He said that anyone that calls it the fourth wave is a poser.
0: Oh, Jeff! <laughs> well, he knows I am. I am. He got me. He got me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, we because I started my podcast in January this year, and like we're just getting like. Some of the people were getting on, anxious to talk about their ska Roots. I would never have imagined would would huh. be like like Pat Pat Stump, Patrick Stump from Fallout Boy. Oh, okay. Um, Laura Jane Grace came on the show. I mean, she's on a mission to get Operation Ivy to yes. reunite. So, I, oh, I'm, oh,
0: I'm, how's <laughs> that campaign going? What well, she started a a, a signature <laughs> campaign to get them to do a reunion show. Yes. <laughs>
2: Um, she yeah. did, yeah. Yeah <laughs> is it is
0: it gaining any traction? Or
2: I mean, it's it's doing well. I don't know that that means anything in terms yeah, of <laughs> the band picked up on it, right? I don't think the band's like, oh, okay. Well, we have to do it. <laughs>
0: I love the heat though that Laura's doing. That's fucking yeah. great. Yeah,
2: yeah. So, um, yeah, it seems like people are much more comfortable now with um talking about the fact that they used to be part of ska or they do like ska or that there's some ska bands they like. Um, I, I like the fact that that's changed, and it's almost like people are trying to be like um, dropping the roots, like that they yeah, were down from day one. Almost, you know. Oh,
0: okay. Which, uh, it's so like now the, it's, it's getting cool. Everyone's got their time, man.
1: You
0: it's uh, it's definitely bizarro world. <laughs> that's awesome. So we are in the fourth
2: wave. Yeah, Jeff's the OG in terms of being like well known outside of the ska scene, but having the OG roots, right. and because he. Not only does he have the roots with um, his old band, Arrogant Sons of Bitches, but um, he's always like uh, campaign hard for ska. Yes. So yes. even when he wasn't playing it, he was he was out there saying ska's awesome. So
0: uh, I heard your wife hates ska.
2: My wife hates <laughs> ska. <laughs> she,
0: she does. Oh, how's that work? <laughs> that was, I mean, you really like. I you know normally I'd be like, ah, oh, it's just you know people have different music, but you're like. The Sky Guy. So I mean that's you know, like, does this cause any problems?
2: No. You know, she um <laughs> she worked with me and, and helped me edit the book. So she devoted okay. a lot of time reading it twi- and edited it twice. So ooh. and she so was she a good promoter. She knows barometer.
0: a lot. So even if she has like a lot it, about it, she knows Scott. a lot about it. What is like her everyone's got one band or song or something where they're like,
2: okay, I kinda like that one. What's hers? You know the one that she like that won her over is uh, I made her listen to Ska Dream.
1: Oh, I was like,
2: you should you should just listen to this album. So we we were we were on a drive somewhere and we put it on, and um, she didn't really say much during. And then afterwards, she's like, I really like that. That's great. (laughs) I was like, nice. All right. Wow. She liked. I think she liked the fact that it was um almost like Mr. Bungley, and it's sort of like constant Mm. changes and and sort of chaos because she likes mr bungle okay um i you know she's just not a big fan of the happy sounding the happy quality of ska it just doesn't (laughs) doesn't doesn't, you know it just doesn't do it for her
0: (laughs) i mean i mean in all honesty i think that's like that's what threw me off for a long time too and i think that's where some people, but it wasn't just ska. It was, it was pop punk too. It was like anything that wasn't serious. I was like a broody little kid. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. I was looking to get mad. I was looking for like those places to put my emotions. I wasn't looking to like, be like, Oh, Saturday's coming. Like I can dress up with my friends and be happy. I was like, Saturday's (laughs) coming. I'm like, Gonna put on the shittiest hoodie because it's about to get ripped apart at this show because we're about to go beat the shit out of each other. You know, it was like just a different, uh, a different place that it was going. And I think, uh, it's a credit to Ska that I always saw it as this perpetually over the top positive kind of thing for a broody mm-hmm. like 16 year old. It wasn't exactly what I needed at the time. But now in hindsight, I like the fact that it's got this kind of, at the time it had this, like you, we talked about earlier, this very welcoming uh, mm-hmm. sort of thing. It's there for anybody who wants it, right?
2: Yeah, it's there. I mean, I I, I like a lot of music. and I like, um, you know, I also was in, you know, at the same time I was in the ska in the 90s, I was super into like The Cure and Depeche Mode and... And I still love all that kind of stuff, too. And, and like sad music and all that stuff. I don't think ang- Angry never... Angry was the one I didn't super ever really get a appeal for. But Yeah, you don't sound like a very angry character to me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't hear it in
0: your voice. I don't hear it in your voice. <laughs> I think I have a theory. Can I Can I talk to you about my theory?
2: I want to hear your theory.
0: I think after a certain point, you were kind of only getting... A certain type of person who was actively playing the horn through high school, mm-hmm. and every ska band required a horn section <laughs> you know, so if you just go to any town in America and scout like the brass you know the uh, section of the school band, I mean no offense to these characters, you're not exactly getting really cut and edge high school kids there you're getting horn kids so so that's where i wonder my theory might be penny
1: you're gonna you better be careful you're gonna get cancelled here you
0: know? no 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 <laughs> listen careful. this is i've we've been down this road before i'm comfortable now playing Like the dumb
1: old Ska Patsy guy.
0: I think it works for me. Um, Are you saying that
1: Ska people are nerds, Benny?
0: I was saying (laughs) that if you're putting a nine-piece band together and there's like a hundred nine-piece bands in America and you need to fill three or four of these parts with horn players, yeah, I'm sorry. You're going to get a high percentage of nerds. And maybe that's why it happened a little Maybe uh, this is where part of the the uh, uh, overarching negative aesthetic people had. I happen to love nerds. Revenge of the Nerds is one of my there, favorite. Some movies. of them are very
2: nice people.
0: <laughs> I am a nerd. Like like this is. I'm just a nerd who happens to not play horn. But now that it's out there, Aaron does does my theory
2: hold water? So here here's my counterpoint to it is like Ooh, please. <laughs> yes, you have a bunch of high school bands start up and they enlisted the high school horn players to join their band, but yes, like why like every high school band oh, just about every high school band of any genre is kind of bad usually
1: <laughs> I mean are we gonna
2: like judge punk rock on the uh the, the how the mm. quality of the sixteen year olds that are playing it, or right. are we gonna look at the genre and and the developed bands that have been a while around a while that are in their twenties or thirties? and kind of evaluate them. Scott gets like this weird thing where we're looking at the like the opening 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 band that formed mm. like 3 months ago. Like what what, yeah. do, what do they have to do with the genre? They're just the kids. I mean, they'll probably be they'll either quit or be good at some point, but right now they're just a new band. You're right. So, I
0: mean, you're highlighting the weird psychological default that I think your book is combating, right? Yeah. Like, like it's such, it is a strange phenomenon that we've discussed a bunch of times on here. Like why ska just got put (laughs) into that category. I know Brad's got theories.
2: Yeah.
1: I, you heard my theory. It's I, it's the third wave, dude. The third wave of goofy bands. I'm a huge specials fan. And I think they're one of the greatest bands of like the, you know, the last 30 years and like, and they're not, Upbeat. I mean, their beats are upbeat, but their their fucking songs are dark and uh, deep. Yeah, and-
2: I mean, there's plenty of darks. I just think that I think that Scott, ha- not necessarily the specific bands, but I think Scott having gotten thrusted into the mainstream and the way it did hurt it. But I don't, I don't like hold that against any specific band. I I kind of point the finger more at the way that the culture and the labels and the the tastemakers presented ska and, and the bands they chose and the way they chose them. So I think that when, when you the point you make, and I think a lot of people make that point, it's sort of like puts the, it's sort of like blaming the bands like, Oh, you bands ruined ska. I don't think that's the case. And there was a lot of great bands. I mean, what if different bands had been elevated and ska yeah, was no, I presented differently? I get
1: exactly what you're saying. And that's really, it is on the, on the, yeah, the labels are going to package what is kind of. I mean, they're going to they're going to go for what seems kind of the more hyper, you know, real package. You know, like yeah. Although it's funny that you know that doesn't work with the fishbone uh, theory because fishbone was fucking amazing looking and acting, super and, cool. Yeah, yeah like but look that at was um, are complete you, are you, package you, right there.
2: Do you know the fishbone? Here's my here's my uh, alternate r- uh, reality. Um, Proposition I like to propose is um, Have you ever heard the song Unyielding Conditioning by Fishbone from their album Give a Monkey a Brain and He'll Swear He's the Center of the Universe?
0: I have definitely heard it because I had okay. that record for a long time, but I would have to refresh. Okay.
2: Something like 1993, I think. So uh, most of the record is like not ska, it's like, like metal and like oh, this pretty weird stuff, but they have this beautiful ska song, Unyielding Conditioning. Um, great, like soulful melody, great horn line, the lyrics, I, we had Angelo Moore on the podcast and he talked f- about, I asked him about that song. He gave me like an eight minute answer, which was just, just about how, you know, society like hammers us with all of these like ideas and narratives that we were forced into, I mean, I don't want to try to paraphrase his answer. Cause it was, it was just a, um, a beautiful concept that he was, Presenting that this the lyrics were from, came from, and I imagine I try to imagine like what if in 1993 this song took off, and this was the first ta- you know taste of ska. Everyone was like the labels and MTV were like ska, ska's here. Listen to this song. It's Fishbone. It's Fishbone doing Unyielding mm-hmm. Conditioning. How would how would that have impacted culture's understanding of ska, and how would that have changed the kind of bands that got signed and and what, the audience and all those things. I think it would have been vastly different. I mean, yeah. what if, um, what if Hepcat, what if Hepcat took off? I mean, they, in 1997, they put out a record called right on time. Um, there's a song, I can't remember the name of the song. I'm blanking on it, but they went on Conan O'Brien and played this like great song. Um, can't wait. I think it's called. What if that was a hit? I mean, obviously they had that in mind because they got booked on Conan O'Brien and they played that song. Well, it's interesting because I think
0: think historical precedence sort of proves your point, actually, in this case. Because, I mean, if we take any genre of music that you care deeply about and you know the underground about, was the thing that broke into the mainstream the thing you want there or is actually representative of the entire scene in music? Like, no. Almost never for any form of music. So I do think it's a really fair point. The the idea that the the things that connected to a wider audience or got to the mainstream aren't necessarily indicative of the entire scene. And it's really easy to to put it in that box. I I totally agree with that point, actually.
2: And I, I think yeah, fuck some people, off, like, <laughs> the, and the, the one point I will kind of understand, I do kind of understand about why people like look at two tone and then what came after is that well, one of the main differences between two tone and American ska is that there were hardly any bands in two tone ska, and mm. the reason that that's the case is because it kind of like came and it blew up and then it died. So American Ska was the product of like 15 years of building in the underground. So by the time Ska went in the mainstream, there were hundreds of bands. So that's why I look at it as like this weird thing where it's like, well, any of these bands could have been chosen and these are the ones that got chosen, but two tone, it was its own thing. And those were the bands. Those were the bands that existed. And those were the bands that got launched into the top 10 uh, stratosphere of the UK. And it's, they they got that way cuz they were all good but they were the bands that existed there wasn't there wasn't like 25 other bands that were like oh man right. why didn't we make it you know <laughs> right so yeah. i don't know yeah. two tone is so so perfect though i mean there's almost like never been a better period of pop music if you look at it as a pop phenomenon yeah yeah how it's like it was it was top top 10 these bands were political these bands had they're all unique they all had different influences. They were all sort of united by this thing called ska. And um, and they were all good. It's
0: interesting. Do you think, uh, you know, obviously music in general, you know, the presentation of it is leading, you know, towards a much much more visual element at this point, you know, with with YouTube and video stuff and the things you have to connect to music now that you didn't have to. And, you know, I could watch that Scott Tune network all day. Like the videos he makes are so <laughs> like, they're just Man. like gripping. I don't know. Like, yeah, I, I just, I, I watch it and I'm like, I'm like, I don't even know why I'm watching this, but I could watch it for like 45 minutes. Cause it's sort of infectious. Do you think, uh, you know, the new presentation of music actually lends itself to Scott what, what's your predictions for for the genre moving forward? Are, are some great? Are, are there young bands pushing the envelope further right now? Is anyone doing like a digital element? Like what's going on in ska? What do you predict moving forward? I, d-
2: I definitely think we're at in an interesting period of time where we're going to see. Well, we're already seeing new bands gain traction. I think there's been new bands for you know, you know, the last twenty years. You know, but They've always been kind of eclipsed by the nineties legacy bands like the Real Big Fish and Less Jake and Mighty Mighty Boston's. Those are the always been the the bands that everyone's focused on, even out even though they're after their main period of time, right? This the known songs. But these new are bands, nice. um uh Cat Bite from Philadelphia, uh Bad yep. Bad Operation from New Orleans, We Are the Union, uh they're well, they're they're from all over the place. Um, those are all great bands. Bad Time Records as a label is like consistently putting out interesting stuff. So Scott Tune Network um definitely plays on that sort of internet nostalgia thing, but Jeremy who runs that site yeah has interesting original music and they are putting out a record in the very near future. I've heard a few tracks. Oh, it's cool. very interesting. Uh and I think people or I hope people will see Jeremy Less as um more of a you know like fun little novelty thing and more of a interesting songwriter because it mm. definitely takes a lot of influence from uh Jeff Rosenstock in in terms of their songwriting style okay um you know and and, and the composition um there there has been um there has been some electronic ska which i'm i'm hoping to see more of How's you know, um, it
0: being done? Like, uh, like program drums and stuff like that?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you see, like, there's that, that, um, hyper pop band, 100 Gex. They have a few ska songs okay. done just like their other stuff, like all kind of weird electronic pop music, but with upbeats.
1: That's um, interesting.
2: But there's a few artists that are just like doing that. There's, um, there's an artist named Eichler's who, He has an album out, but it's kind of less ska, but he's got an album coming out that's much more into this vein of like electro ska. And I think it's really interesting. Um, I feel like we're going to be seeing more of that because it makes more sense for people, for kids who are younger and have been around electronic music. And also just the idea of like... You know, it's, it's how hard is it to put together a seven piece band and and really imagine going <laughs> right. a tour right now yeah, as an yeah. as an as playing basements. I mean, like sure. if you're one or two people, it's way more like a doable thing That's now true. with like just amount like in the nineties, like gas was like <laughs> so <laughs> cheap and uh you could sell CDs and people bought CDs and they cost it <laughs> like a dollar to make and you could sell yeah. them for like ten bucks. Yeah. So yeah. It's not, it's just a lot harder to like make it on the road as a, as a ska band. Even like bands like Cat Bite and Bad Operation, um, they're like Cat Bite's like a four piece band, so they don't yeah. have horns. They have organ. Bad That's Operation right. has one guy that does trombone and keyboard. And mm-hmm. so, like, I feel like even the like being a four or five piece band is like a way more doable thing too nowadays than like sure. being like six or seven.
0: And having it was barely session.
2: doable in the '90s, but I mean, people pulled it off because uh, right, the money was there.
0: Yeah. So the to reduce the carbon footprint of ska, we're gonna we're gonna digitize horns from now on.
2: <laughs> but I think, like, what I'm seeing and what I, can, I hope we continue to see is that it is like kind of, it is building from the bottom up. Like these these bands are creating interesting music and they're connecting with their audience, and the and the audiences are connecting to it. Uh, there hasn't been a whole lot of interest from outside. So what's it, what, what's curious is that like when Jeff put out his album, every outlet was like, okay, we got to cover this. It's Jeff Rosenstock. Right. And then, you know, there was a few articles that were like Scott's back, you know, that were written in mainstream presses. And I, I got like wrapped up in that, which was great for me and my book, but wasn't really the point of my book either. Right. It was just odd timing. <laughs> and, um, but you know where where are those places now are they are they are they reviewing these new bands albums? Uh, so far, they're not right? It was just they got kind of caught up in the like, oh, there's a thing happening. Let's talk about the thing and not really take an active interest in mm. it going forward. But I think that in the underground and in in the actual scene, I th- feel like that's growing and it has potential to grow more and and if it continues to grow more and if the the bands are good, people will start coming to it. That's awesome. But, you I know, love it. We'll see. I mean, that's like the hopeful answer.
0: <laughs> Much respect to Cat Bite, too. That's a good group. It is a good group. Yeah. yeah. So, Aaron, I appreciate all this time. I have one final question for you before we get out of here. Sure, sure. And we're going to use the desert island scenario. <laughs> You're on a desert island. You get dropped. You can have one record that is not ska. <laughs>
2: Uh, one record, it? not ska. All right. I thought you were going to make me choose a ska record. It's actually much easier to choose a not ska Man. record. <laughs> oh, okay. Good. My favorite record is um, 69 Love Songs by The Magnetic Fields. Oh. Uh-huh. Wow. And then, bonus, That's... I think, bonus, um, it being like three albums long since it's <laughs> oh, 69. There you, go. you got some extra tracks.
1: <laughs> you got plenty of music to listen to. Yeah. Well, Aaron good good for you
0: for as you say you're out there you're the sky guy and you had a very very credible answer to my question so so good for you you're coming out clean Aaron you're doing good nice. <laughs> but I appreciate your uh your mission in the world I greatly support you and my friends Jeff and Catbite and uh even though I sometimes come off naive about this stuff. I am an appreciator of it and I Are you still know. Thank you. And your book was awesome. I read a good portion of it through the last, you know, twenty-four hours. It's really cool. Yeah. So thanks for coming on, man. Sure, sure. Thank you for having me on. That movie is so stupid and awesome. You really gotta watch it.
1: Okay. I watch can I watch it with the kids?
0: <laughs> yeah i like totally actually yeah it's like kid friendly uh, i think my mom is even the one who showed it to dude,
1: me oscar's so into surfing right now he's playing the oh, beach he yeah. plays the beach boys every day
0: well that's the point of the movie is that frankie avalon is some old surfer who comes back to his original beach to to uh, to surf the biggest wave that ever comes it's called like the big kahuna from down under, or something. <laughs> so it is about, and there are hilarious scenes of Frankie Avalon like fake surfing, you know, with like a green screen oh, yeah, background. Yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: it's, yeah, it's good. It's waving good. his arms out to the side like he's bouncing.
0: Yeah. It's really funny. Oh, um, David Bowie's in it. Oh, David Bowie. Really? Dick Dale's in it. Wait. Stevie Ray Vaughn's in it. Really? Yeah, says Dick Dale as himself. Stevie Ray Vaughan as himself. Fishbone as themselves. Yeah, pretty cool. Okay. And Pee Wee Herman.
1: <laughs> he can do a good fake surf.
0: So watch the movie.
1: Right. Um, you know what? I'm going to give props to somebody. If if there's still time to go out and check it out because he's on tour. I just saw Joe Sib with Joey Cape on Saturday.
0: Where we are we are we in the outro here? Yeah,
1: why not? I'm gonna leave all that in. Don't you think? I have no idea.
0: <laughs> it's all
1: intro. It's all outro. Where are we in this podcast? I don't know.
0: Oh, I don't know. All right, so gonna, you're giving love to Joe Joe Sibiana. Yeah,
1: yeah. Go see Joe Sib. He's doing some. He's doing some. He's stand up comedian now. Joe Sib oh, from yeah. Wax Twenty Two Jacks. He's been on this show very
0: um, funny stand up comedian. Yeah, and add. like
1: the when he di- so he's opening for for Joey Cape. Joey's doing uh Joey from Lagwagon is doing like a acoustic tour and Joe's opening and but Joe's also doing some solo shows. So and they're both different. Like, you know, he does a lot of music stuff when he is with Joey and then I know that and then it, he does other stuff when he's doing his like comedy club stuff. So he's a funny funny band Go look for them. Life of the party. If they're coming to your area. I think the tour might only have a few more shows left, but I know Joe's got a couple of solo shows booked. So
0: I mean, I'm a little disappointed they didn't lean into the, the Joe Joe thing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, we got nothing there, guys? You know, it's wide open. Hey, I guess Joe. It, it was Maybe they cute. can do, like, a little who's on first during Joe's set. Get cape up there. <laughs> the little who's on first. This hey. is why I'm not a comedian. I was just telling my wife, say I got no jokes. I literally, I like if someone was like, hey Benny, tell me a joke. I have like two, and they're really bad. You know?
1: Oh, jokes. This is a thing because I have this disease, and I always have where I can't remember jokes. You can't remember them. Yeah, but it's a thing. Like this is like I'm yeah, not the only joke person. Teller.
0: Is there so? This is the only one I have. Horse walks into a bar. Bartender says, Hey, why the long face? <laughs> it's a good one. It's a dad joke. Uh, that's, that's all I got. But like I I kind of remember do you think the internet is taking away like the joke guy? I I remember when I was younger, you would like go somewhere and someone someone would just have like a pocket full of jokes.
1: Okay. Right, gotta, and they would just tell a bunch of fucking jokes. I gotta tell you my joke, Benny. Oh, you got the one? The one joke that I can remember because this okay. is the best joke that I could uh-huh. ever tell you. Uh huh. <laughs> my
0: dad told me this. No juju. Jo- no Jew jokes, Brad.
1: Uh, <laughs> it's not a. It's not an anti-Semitic joke. Oh my, my god! It is a joke. <laughs> how did I know? my dad dad i knew it from your quivering little
0: voice i knew it my dad told
1: me this joke like years before i'd ever been to new york city or knew anything about the culture tell me about these two white
0: guys telling jewish jokes to each other let's hear it
1: (laughs) all right just to make you feel better i'm gonna change the names old lady smith she lives downtown what is it really? Old lady shekel or something? She goes... To, I don't remember. I can only remember the joke itself. Okay. All right. She go goes on. to the bakery. I'm
0: ready. I'm scared, but I'm ready. <laughs> oh, he She goes to sip. the bakery
1: okay. on, on Thursday. Uh-huh. She walks in Thursday morning. She's like, hey, I like bagel, like maybe a dozen. And uh, the baker goes... Uh, I'm sorry, we got no bagels today. We cook the bagels. We cook on Monday and Tuesday. We cook bagels. We got bagels Monday, Tuesday. We got sometimes on Wednesday. Never bagels on Thursday. So next Thursday she comes in again. I like bagels like maybe a dozen. Yes. Lady, I think you were here last week. I told you we got no bagels. We cook bagels on Monday, sometimes Tuesday. Maybe we get some bagels on Wednesday, but never on Thursday. We got no bagels. The next week <laughs> Thursday the lady comes in yeah, I like a bagels like maybe a dozen he's like lady uh, can you spell she's like, yeah, I can spell can you spell dog d o g can you spell dog I can't tell fucking jokes yeah dog d o g can you spell cat like catastrophe mm-hmm. cat c a t cat he's like Can you spell, uh, can you spell fuck like in bagels? And she goes, there's no fucking bagels. And he's like, lady, that's what I've been trying to tell you for three weeks. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I fucked that joke up. It's supposed to be, can you
0: spell dog like dogmatic? I don't know. Uh, Okay, I see, I see. Maybe the next next time next wet- time you really knock them dead.
1: I <laughs> will go back and edit that and overdub it. No, I won't. I'm an idiot. <laughs>
0: well, I'm I'm just really listen, I'm relieved that it just wasn't a racist joke.
1: <laughs> <I was super laughs> but it did relieved. have a bad accent that was not totally decipherable.
0: Yeah, I was getting right re- I was like, "Oh god, is that?" I'm like, "All right, at least that's a sort of blanket European accent. It's not Thank If you. you were like Oh, excuse me, good sir. (laughs) Do you have any bagels today? Oh, good. Oh, Kevold. Like then I'd... I'd Oy vey.
1: Oy vey.
0: (laughs) Well, as usual, if you uh, enjoyed the program, maybe you can uh, go on and give some stars. Or if you'd like... (laughs) I know. Give us a nice review. Just normal, A couple people. Make it a genuine review. No, no, no. Stop it, Brad. (laughs) So a couple people left some beautiful reviews this week that were oily and sexy. And I read the reviews and I felt riled up and I felt (laughs) warm. And I put on Teddy Pendergrass music. I literally lit a scented candle, put on a robe. And played Teddy Pendergrass just to read these reviews. So thank you so much for those sexually explicit reviews. It cracks me up. It makes Brad uncomfortable. Let's keep it coming, my friends. And slowly
1: Uh, the robe fell open. That's right. And Benny was there by himself. On your third sentence,
0: I was uncloaked. By the fourth, I was shorn. And by the fifth, I was engaged. I should write. Oh, I should write a response to these reviews. <laughs> uh, we also have a Patreon. Um, yes, we do. I, I have. I hope Brad's been putting stuff on, but we have a Thursday night fireside chat where we all engage with each other and share the spoils of the week. So, <laughs> if you like the program, uh, you know, join up for these things.
1: You can leave us a little tip uh, on Venmo at Off Track. I'll
0: take it. We'll um, take it. These kids ain't cheap.
1: Whatever. But yeah, the reviews are nice. Uh, <laughs> catch up with Aaron. Instagram at Aaron underscore Karnes, C-A-R-N-E-S. Twitter, he is at Aaron Karnes with no underscore. Mm-hmm. And Facebook, he is at C... A-R-N-E-S. Oh, he's at Karns Aaron on Facebook. <laughs> Doi.
0: Facebook's working. It's, it's laden, all good.
1: Waking yeah. up. Um. Yeah, and catch up with us at Going Off Track wherever you get your social media. Mm. Well, the
0: Yankees are down 3-0. Ugh, fucking sucks. I'm going to go watch the rest <laughs> of this game against the Sox. But uh, everyone you know, love everybody this week and, uh, don't be a dick. (laughs) And, uh, hopefully we'll see you next time.